This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. It's hard to believe that it was 20 years ago next month that we began our adventure with radio. It took us a couple of years to find our way to one of America's great public radio stations, KDVS, and a few years later after that to find our way up to another one of America's great public radio stations, KZFR in Chico. We're pleased to note for today's program we'll be joined by someone who was here when we got here at Davis's best radio station, and someone who will probably be here long after we are gone. Dr. Andy Jones will be joining us a few minutes from now. And if you've heard him before, and we presume you have, you know that that's, that's going to be good. Dr. Andy continues his run of hosting Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour, heard every Wednesday afternoon. Since we're starting out in a literary vein, I wanted to go to Something I have quoted before on this show, and it's time we did it again. This is the Shouts and Murmurs section of The New Yorker. Frankly, I don't think they have a strong batting average. But on occasion, when they do get some wood on the ball, it can wind up deep in the bleachers. So it is, I would like to quote from a reprinted article that evidently first was published in February 26th of 1990 by Ian Fraser and reappeared in the last uh, issue of the magazine uh, last year. The title of the article is Coyote versus Acme, and is described as the opening statement of Mr. Harold Schaff, attorney for Mr. Coyote. My client, Mr. Wile E. Coyote, a resident of Arizona and contiguous states, does hereby bring suit for damages against the Acme Company, manufacturer and retail distributor of assorted merchandise. Mr. Coyote seeks compensation for personal injuries, loss of business income, and mental suffering caused as a direct result of the actions and or gross negligence of said company under Title 15 of the United States Code, Chapter 47. Mr. Coyote states that on 85 separate occasions he has purchased of the Acme Company, hereinafter defendant, through that company's mail order department, certain products which did cause him bodily injury due to defects in manufacture or improper cautionary labeling. Such injuries sustained by Mr. Coyote have temporarily restricted his ability to make a living in his profession of predator. Mr. Coyote states that on December 13th, he received of defendant via parcel post one Acme rocket sled. The intention of Mr. Coyote was to use the rocket sled to aid him in pursuit of his prey. Upon receipt of the sled, Mr. Coyote removed it from the wooden shipping crate and sighting his prey, activated the ignition. As Mr. Coyote gripped the handlebars, the rocket sled accelerated with such sudden and precipitate force as to stretch his forearms to the length of 50 feet. Subsequently, the rest of Mr. Coyote's body shot forward with a violent jolt, causing severe strain to his back and neck and placing him unexpectedly astride the rocket sled, which soon brought Mr. Coyote abreast of his prey. At that moment, the animal he was pursuing veered sharply to the right, Mr. Coyote vigorously attempted to follow this maneuver, but was unable to do so due to poorly aligned steering on the rocket sled and faulty or non-existent braking system. Shortly thereafter, the unchecked progress of the rocket sled brought it and Mr. Coyote into collision with the side of a mesa. Hampered by injury, Mr. Coyote was nevertheless obliged to support himself 
With this in mind, he purchased of defendant an aid to mobility, one pair of Acme rocket skates. When he attempted to use this product, however, he became involved in an accident remarkably similar to that which occurred with the rocket sled. Again, defendants sold over-the-counter, without caveat, a product which attached powerful jet engines, in this case two, to inadequate vehicles with little or no provision for passenger safety. Encumbered by heavy casts, Mr. Coyote lost control of the rocket skates soon after strapping them on and collided with a roadside billboard in such a way as to leave a hole in the shape of his full silhouette. At any rate, the proceedings go on for another good page and a half. And until and unless Ian Fraser writes a sequel to this, we will not know how this matter turned out. Pretty funny stuff. And we have some follow-up on last week's astronomy. It was noted in an article by Brian Resnick in Vox.com that in the pre-dawn hours of November 18th, 2019, Northwestern University astronomer Cliff Johnson noticed a huge swarm of unfamiliar objects streaking across the sky. That night, Johnson was surveying the Magellanic Clouds with a telescope in Chile. All of a sudden, he says, we just start seeing streaks come across the webcam. I've never seen anything like it. The streaks weren't from the heavens, they were from Earth. And yes, these were from SpaceX satellites, no less than 19 of them. A couple of weeks ago, I went to go visit my neighbor during the evening, and he said, look, up in the sky, and was counting satellites. He counted 19. Now, we currently live in a world where a few billionaires that run tech corporations uh, seem to be on the verge of owning the world. And the tech that they are bringing us, while making our lives easier and more convenient and having many upsides to it, people are becoming increasingly aware, have some terrible terrible downsides. As we speak, SpaceX has put 180 small satellites up, collectively called Starlink. They just launched 60 more last Monday. They'll be followed by more launches, possibly every two weeks. In all, the company has approval from the FCC to launch 12,000 satellites. Elon Musk is seeking approval to launch 30,000 more. SpaceX's goal is for Starlink satellites to form a constellation that will provide internet access for a price to remote stretches of the Earth. And I suppose in some way make it easier for people to keep up with the Kardashians on their cell phones. Now it turns out there are no rights whatsoever to protect John Q. citizens around the world from this assault. The tech billionaires want to do it to make more billions. And despite the fact that many people have pointed out that when you have that many satellites up there orbiting the Earth in low orbit, they are going to start colliding. And when they start colliding, they're going to create many, many more pieces that will then cause more collisions and soon will make space launches problematic. But no one seems to be looking very far down the road about that future looming problem. And in fact, hardly anybody seems to be complaining about it except us, but we're going to continue. Because the night sky is something that should belong to all of us. Even though we noted on last week's program that, well, it isn't 100% reliable. I'm disturbed by the fact that when you go out and look at Orion, Betelgeuse is not what it should be. I know, I'm probably the only one troubled by this. But my hope is that it's not going to explode during my lifetime, even though that's going to create quite a spectacular sight, and then it will again, go back to its normal level of brilliant red illumination. All right, let's see if we can't come back down to planet Earth. 
Returning to the program now for his umpteenth visit uh, is uh, is probably the best friend we've ever had here at Radio Parallax. He's also probably one of the greatest supporters of public radio we can think of. Professor of English extraordinaire and radio host, Dr. Andy Jones. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Dr. Andy. Thank you, Dr. Doug. It's always a pleasure to return to Radio Parallax, now in the year 2020. <laughs> Frightening concept, 2020. We took a break, and we're, we're back on, but you have been, you've been running straight through for, like, what, now, 19 years? What is it? How many years? Yes, this is the beginning of my 20th year here at KDVS, hosting uh, Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. And still going strong. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Andy, being that you, are, you have a skill set that is completely uh, different than ours <laughs> in terms of knowing about the English language and literature and such, I thought we might start with an interesting little sidebar story that sort of, you know, surfaced that some 94-year-old gentleman who was organizing a group that was determined to get people to use the apostrophe correctly threw up his hands, gave up, and just walked away from the whole controversy. I'm sure you have an opinion on this matter. He probably died soon thereafter of grief. (laughs) But, uh, yes, many grammarians like to, in our superior ways, send each other photographs of, for instance, the names of restaurants or retail stores, back when we had retail stores, uh, where uh, they, they would misuse or not use at all apostrophes. Or the name of a, a, a diner, let's say, would be Joe's, J-O-E apostrophe S, and then that would be the entire sign. And we would say, yes, but if it's if it's Joe's, Joe's has to, he has to own something. And you have to say what the thing is that he owns. Wow. I take it then you do, you do not approve of the McDonald's Corporation just calling themselves McDonald's. No. It, I, I mean, there are many reasons I don't approve of the McDonald's Corporation. <laughs> and that is certainly uh, one of them. I, uh, I choose generally not to eat at uh, McDonald's. And it has uh, served me well. No so doubt. I'm not assaulted by their misuse of uh, apostrophes. Well, you know, as, a, as someone who teaches students who are trying to master the use of the English language, I'm sure that they are regularly going, there, you know, going off the road on this one. Absolutely. And something that helps them do so is the language of texting, where to use any sort of punctuation is liable to slow one down when one is writing to one's friends. So my daughter, when I uh, thank her for something, which I try to do whenever appropriate, she does not say, you're welcome, or as the kids say today, no problem. She just types YW, because it takes too much time to write you're welcome, plus there's an apostrophe in the your. Who can be bothered? Another way that our use of technology has further maligned the language is that increasingly we are just dictating to our phones. We're having Siri do all the work, and then we don't even read over our texts, let's say, to see what it is that we've said, to see if we've used an apostrophe correctly. We just send it off, expecting that the other person will have a general sense of what we meant. (laughs) And then this bleeds into other sorts of writing, and I regret to say uh, even some of the essays that are submitted to me in advanced writing classes that I teach at UC Davis. 
Now, as I recall, well over a decade and a half ago, you were noting this ominous uh, trend on the horizon that people were coming to you that were increasingly, I guess you'd say, illiterate. And it hasn't got, obviously it hasn't gotten any better. Well, I mean, in some ways it has. Because of texting being such a pervasive means of communication, my students actually spend much more time today negotiating language, written language, than they did during the aforementioned 15 years ago, when it would be more likely that uh, students would talk to each other on the phone. So there are, there are some uh, advantages in that uh, students are more agile at a variety of technology-shaped dialects that they use when they're talking to one another. It shows a certain kind of uh, sophistication of thought as they code switch from the sort of writing that they do uh, for their friends versus their parents versus, say, applying for a job. But uh, there's still not the attention, the care, the paying attention to detail that's necessary for students sufficiently and in a sustainable way to impress these executive audiences. And that's where I do uh, offer them some help and some perspectives, hopefully without ranting as much as I'm doing right now. <laughs> I have to ask when you're when you're in front of a bunch of students these days, is it just a constant battle with them being distracted and not paying attention to you as they're on their phones? We were talking about this in the first day of class yesterday in my writing and fine arts class. I told them, "Look, I will promise to present you relevant information in an engaging way." You must promise to do your best to be engaged and to attend to the work of the class. I'll make it worth your while, but I'll need your attention to do it. And then I remind them of, we went over this in class yesterday, what an a, uh, a student who's earning an A in participation, which is a percentage of my writing class, what she does versus what a B, C, D, or F student does. For instance, an A student will turn off her phone and put it in her pocket or purse before the beginning of class. The, the B student will leave the phone on the desk but turned over so she can't see it. The C student will uh, leave the phone on the desk but let the text, the incoming notifications be seen, whereas the D student will respond to those texts right there in class as if I weren't there. And how do you get an F? The way that you get enough is you actually answer the call during class when it comes in. <laughs> Luckily, wow. that happens rarely. Wow. My heart goes out to you. I don't know how any can, anybody can be teaching these days under these circumstances. I just uh, love it because I know something of these uh, student perspectives. I know something about technology. And I tell stories in my class. I try to work in some humor in my class. I will allude to topics that students bring up in office hours in my classes. And so I provide them enough surprises that I'm hoping the material itself will keep them always for reaching for their phones. They are sending us messages. It's not just that they're rude. They are sending us messages as teachers when they engage with technology instead of us. And I see that not only as a disappointment, but as a challenge for us to uh, improve our game. I guess 
coming back where we started to the apostrophe, must we give up? I mean, is there any possibility we're going to see people using using this correctly? Not in my class will we <laughs> give up. When students are submitting essays to me, I will point out to them the concerns that are raised by their inattention to detail. Often my class is the last bastion of defense of the apostrophe and of other appropriate uses of punctuation. So it's my responsibility to bring to their attention their egregious errors. What happens uh, before my class, outside of my class, and after my class, I have less control. But they will learn these lessons, and, uh, and often I'll use humor. I do this when looking at anonymous uh, bits of student writing that I project up on the screen. And uh, together, we lightly mock, we jibe at the uh, student writing that's up on the board. And sometimes apostrophes come up in those conversations as well. So as not to mortify any students that are present, often I will choose uh, samples from a previous quarter so that we can uh, make sure that the person who is writing we are attending to, let's say, is actually not in the room. Unless, of course, that student was plagiarizing the people, the work of the prior quarter. <laughs> uh, right. But there are, there are ways to work around that as well. All right. Well, since we're talking about academia, and I guess we are, uh, one of its uh, leading lights passed away not so long ago, Harold Bloom. A man I didn't know a great deal about, but I, I'm sure, you, on the contrary, you know quite a bit about. I guess he cut quite a figure in, in academia and, and made a lot of enemies and or at least stirred things up. Um, what can you tell us about him? Harold Bloom was a, a huge figure, perhaps uh, the most famous of our American-born literary critics. He wrote 40 books, most of them of criticism, and most of them focusing on poetry. So, of course, he's someone whose work that I read. He was controversial for reasons that were personal and reasons that were uh, academic. And I think the academic reasons were uh, more interesting. He was a huge fan of what we call the Western canon. He focused especially on Shakespeare and Chaucer and Milton and when he was an undergraduate at Cornell and then a graduate student at Yale in the 1950s, he was a big fan of the Romantic poets. And so this would be Blake, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron, Shelley, and Keats. And these were, uh, in that particular time period, the 1950s, the Romantic poets had been uh, poo-pooed. They were not being much studied at Yale University, where he earned his Ph.D., or at other universities. And this was due in part to the influence of uh, T.S. Eliot, the great uh, poet and critic who uh, preferred uh, poets from other eras. But Harold Bloom saw connections between the Old Testament works that he knew so well as uh, a practicing Jew born in New York City, whose uh, understanding of the Torah uh, informed his interest in literary studies. And as a result, he brought that sort of interest in literary criticism and biblical studies, and especially the Romantic poets, to the many books that he wrote. 
So uh, he was a very important early scholar in the 50s and 60s with his work on the Romantics. But he really blew things up in the 70s when he came out with uh, a couple of important books called, one was The Anxiety of Influence in 1973, and a couple years later, one called The Map of Misreading. And he basically argued, borrowing from Freud, that great poets were so anxiety-ridden about the influence of uh, the great poets before them that they had to purposely misread those poets, make them seem less important in order that there would be room for the new poet, whether it was Milton kind of arguing in this way in his uh, in Paradise Lost and elsewhere uh, against uh, Homer and Dante, or whether it was uh, Wordsworth arguing with Milton or T.S. Eliot arguing with Wordsworth. It was a fascinating idea and one that uh, helped us look again at, uh, in a more kind of agonistic way, at uh, the entire canon of Western literature. And I think if he had uh, stopped there, that would have uh, helped to cement his importance. But then, in the 80s, the 90s, and up to the present, there were uh, a number of critics, and especially theorists, who felt that Harold Bloom cared only for the giants of the Western canon, who were typically white men, often white British men. (laughs) And so people who were interested in multiculturalism, in gay and lesbian literature, in African-American literature, but also in different theories such as uh, feminism and language poetry, that these people said that there was a kind of uh, Eurocentric, almost racist bent to the work and the interest of Harold Bloom. And he felt that these critics were more interested in complaining than in celebrating great literature, which is, he said, was his uh, primary goal. And so this helped to frame some of the literary debates that uh, took place in English departments, really from uh, the 1980s to the present. It sounds like, though, he was fighting a guerrilla war as he began against the entrenched authorities of the English departments and sort of, at least for a while, carried the day. He did. And one way that he could carry the day is that he had something called an eidetic memory. If I were teaching a class, I would spell it up on the whiteboard, E-I-D-I-T-I-C. This means he had a photographic memory, and this is what he carried around in his head. All of Shakespeare, including the sonnets. Hmm. All of Blake, all of Wordsworth, all of Shelley, all of Chaucer, all of Milton, including all of Paradise Lost, he could bring it up conversationally the way that you might uh, bring up something that, say, your sister had said at breakfast the day before. Wow. And so he was uh, an impressive person in the classroom, but he was an impressive debater with these many people who he called members of the school of resentment, (laughs) that for every complaint they offered, he could uh, quote chapter and verse why they were wrong and why these uh, other great poets (laughs) transcended these minor debates and squabbles in uh, English departments and complet departments. One does imagine that would have gotten annoying after a while. It would if he weren't such an amazing lecturer. In, In preparing for... Our conversation today, I listened to 
an interview on uh, Charlie Rose. I um, listened to an interview on National Public Radio, and he spoke so endearingly, so lovingly, of the poets that he read and memorized, including many uh, contemporary poets. He wrote a book maybe, this was about nine years ago, about the last poems of many great poets. Uh, oh. And it seems from the interview that he had memorized all of these poems, of course. Wow. But he said uh, that he knew many of the poets personally and championed their work that appeared in the second half of his book, The Greatest Poets of the, the 20th Century. So he was centrally located in the great debates about poetry, but also he was a great advocate for American and British poetry. So it was a, a great loss when he passed away in October. Uh, I think he died on a Sunday, but he had just taught a class on a Thursday. Huh. He was the sort of person who, obviously at 89... Uh, and having sold some of his books for um, million-dollar royalty checks, uh, advances, I should say, that he obviously could have retired many years earlier, but he so loved engaging with uh, these works of poetry, and he so loved uh, engaging with his students, mostly appropriately. Did you cross paths with him in your your studies as as a young man? I did as a fan. On two occasions, he came up from New Haven, where he taught at Yale for his entire life. He finished his Ph.D. very much like I did here at UC Davis. This is probably the only way that the two of us could be compared. (laughs) But uh, I finished my Ph.D. at UC Davis, and I've been teaching here ever since. He finished his Ph.D. in 1959 at Yale and stayed there uh, for the rest of his career. But on occasions, he would come up to Harvard University and give public talks at uh, one of the main auditoriums there. So on two occasions, I went uh, to see him speak. It was a, a, a wonderful opportunity. He looked very much like Zero Mostel, and oh. critics uh, compared <laughs> him to Falstaff, the, the very portly friend of uh, Prince Hal in the King Henry IV plays by Shakespeare and then uh, briefly in King Henry V. He was a, um, a delightful person to, to watch. He felt concerned for his health because he looked like he was about 150 pounds overweight. <laughs> but obviously he lived to be 89. He said in one of his uh, final interviews that he had had six near-death experiences and that this helped him continue his work because he wanted to impress further upon new audiences the importance of poetry to what it means to be human. Well, I hope, Dr. Andy, that into your ninth decade, you will continue to do your good work at UC Davis. I hope so, too. You know, um, I might be one of those rare people who will have taught at UC Davis for 50 years at, uh, at some point. Um, I don't know if my wife will let me work <laughs> for that many years rather than uh, retiring, mm-hmm. maybe doing some traveling or something. Mm-hmm. But either way, I've committed my life to this university and uh, and I found it to be uh, very rewarding indeed. And we should plug, I think, before we go today, the fact that you are continuing in your extracurricular sort of activities to be a, a, a pub quiz host extraordinaire. That's true. I uh, host a pub quiz at De Vere's Irish Pub on Monday evenings, to which people are invited. That's the De Vere's Irish Pub in Davis. I also host the Poetry Night Reading Series on the first and third Thursdays of every month at the John Natsoulis Gallery. 
and I have a weekly column in the Davis Enterprise if people are interested in that. I'm sure they will be. Well, Dr. Andy, always a pleasure, always informative, and uh, we hope to have you on again uh, before long. Thank you very much, Doug. It's been a pleasure. Let's take a short break. We've got plenty more in our second segment, so don't go away. You're listening to Radio Parallax.